Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So this time last year, yeah, my apartment was hot. <laughs> I uh, like how while we've recorded today, because we record other thing, many things at once, mm-hmm. the heat has come up many times. Yes. It has been a long stretch of 95 and above. Which sounds like heaven to me. Right. But I know I'm a weirdo. We don't have air conditioning. Uh, so it was hot. <laughs> I was looking at a very... Uh, very dark and heavy short list of podcast topics to cover. Uh, and uh, when this happened last year, the result of my quest to find something that was cool and pleasant to talk about was good humor versus pops- popsicle. Uh, the exact same thing is happening as we speak right now. And it has brought us to today's <laughs> topic of butter versus margarine. So unlike the popsicle episode, which involved this handful of businesses and their ongoing legal battles about who could get to make which frozen treats, uh, this one is about whole industries and entire governments and just a really weird preoccupation <laughs> with protecting people from the nefarious horrors of margarine uh, way before people were making it with the hydrogenated oils that led to its like more unhealthy reputation in more recent years. Uh, there's even bootlegging involved in this whole story. <laughs> so big props to our colleagues at HowStuffWorks now for their Ridiculous History series, which is a series of articles about weird things in history. Uh, and it's home to the article that inspired today's show, which is delightfully entitled Land of Fakes, Margarine Bootlegging in Canada. <laughs> and as was the case when we talked about the history of cheese, most of the stories about where butter came from are probably apocryphal. All of the English words for butter trace back to Latin, with the Greek origins purportedly stemming from the words for ox or cow and cheese. Although there's some debate about all that, so grain of salt it. Uh, There are various tales about nomadic peoples, whether they were European or Western Asian, traveling with pack animals, possibly camels, and the milk sloshing around in skins turning into butter. Similar stories go with the cheese tale. We put milk in a skin and it came out as cheese because rennet, like that's the cheese origin story. Uh, This story for butter makes logical sense. Because butter is made when milk or cream are agitated in some way, usually by being shaken up or churned until the fat coagulates. And then these fatty solid bits can be pressed into delicious butter and buttermilk is what's left behind. And a number of early cultures did store liquids in skins and also simultaneously traveled with them on pack animals. So it's possible that's what happened. All the same, though, it's just about impossible now to determine the exact birthplace and time of butter. Because it all melted. Not all of it. <laughs> Not all of it, because this next being bit. Funny. <laughs> uh, or if they were traveling with me, because I ate it. <laughs> uh, thanks to written records and archaeology, we do know that butter has existed for at least 5,000 years. And we do have some actual samples, so my smart-alecky comment does not apply. Uh, we have actual samples of incredibly old butter, thanks to Ireland's peat bogs. As early as 3000 BCE, people living around those bogs buried butter, often in a wooden vessel, but sometimes in a skin or a crock or some other container in the bog. We're not sure this was a pre- if this was a preservation technique or an offering or some completely other purpose, but thousands of years later, people are still stumbling onto these long buried deposits of butter, and some of which are really tallow or something else that's fatty and waxy. Yeah, some of it's basically butter though. It usually smells really rancid, so don't fancy that. Don't, <laughs> don't eat, don't eat bog butter. Margarine. 
<laughs> That's the shirt I want. Don't eat bog butter. <laughs> okay. It's kind of like don't eat the yellow snow. Don't eat the bog butter. No. Just life lessons. Yeah. So margarine, on the other hand, much easier pedigree to trace. At the 1866 World's Fair, Emperor Louis Napoleon III, who was nephew to Napoleon Bonaparte, announced that he wanted a substitute for butter that could benefit poor people and the French military. So the price of butter had almost doubled in the two decades leading up to this announcement. It was just way too expensive for a lot of people in France to afford. And it was way, way, way too expensive to just serve it up to France's armed forces. It cost way too much money. The French War Office offered a cash prize to the person who could solve this problem. The idea wasn't just to make something that might taste good enough to tempt people to spread it on their bread instead of butter. It needed to work as a substitute for butter in cooking, and ideally, it needed to be less perishable than butter, which turns rancid pretty quickly when it's not kept cold. And it needed to have some dietary value in the form of fat and calories. French chemist Epolite Mejmorier took the prize in 1869 with a spreadable emulsion of beef tallow and water churned together with a little bit of milk for flavor. And it met all the right criteria. It was a dietary source of fat and calories. It had a sort of buttery taste. And it was cheap. It cost as little as half the price of butter. He called it oleomargarine, probably more like oleomargarine in French with my terrible French accent. This came from the Latin oleum for beef fat and the Greek, the Greek margarite for pearl. There are also some sources that say that this came from margaric acid, which was at the time believed to be a fatty acid that was heavily present in milk. But all of the chemistry involving that at the time was just wrong. My mother, who was a very good cook, uh, her mother was French. And, mm-hmm. you know, even well into the... 1990s, my mom would call margarine oleo. Yeah, yeah. It, oleo was what it was called in a lot of places. Yeah. Mejmorier patented his invention and eventually sold his patent to Dutch buttermaking company Jurgens. Jurgens would eventually go on to become part of Unilever, which, by total coincidence, now also owns the Popsicle brand because <laughs> everything is connected in some weird Come way. Come full circle. Uh, Mejmorier was granted a U.S. patent in 1873, which he sold to the U.S. Dairy Company. He was granted patents on a few. Nope. He was granted patents in a few other nations as well. All these patents make it sound like he became successful off of this invention. He really didn't make a lot of money off of it, though. Uh, Margarine didn't really take off in Europe. France, of course, is famous for its very buttery cooking. And French chefs and citizens were just not too excited about swapping butter for a spread invented by a chemist, which people thought of as artificial also didn't catch on quickly in other European nations either. And most of the laws that were passed relating to it in Europe were just devoted to trying to prevent people from fraudulently selling margarine labeled as butter. By 1887, Germany, for example, had enacted a margarine law mandating very clear labeling and separate displays for margarine and butter in shops. Right on. Uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States all took steps to regulate margarine. And we're going to talk about that in North America in particular. But first, we're going to pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So, margarine story in Canada is pretty straightforward. 
Canada had a total margarine prohibition from 1886 until 1949, with one brief window from 1917 until 1922 because of dairy and butter shortages during World War One. That brief window did not reopen during World War II, though, because at that point, the government dealt with these shortages through rationing rather than by temporarily allowing people to buy artificial butter. The reason for Canada's prohibition was that was that margarine was viewed as an injurious product that people needed to be protected from. However, for decades after margarine's invention, Newfoundland wasn't yet part of Canada. And in Newfoundland, things were quite different. The climate there didn't make cattle farming easy at all. You would basically have to keep your cows inside for much of the year. And consequently, most dairy products, including butter, had to be imported. I'm just going to make a little side note that every time we say Newfoundland on the podcast, we get a different video with a different correct pronunciation So I'm just putting that out there if you were about to type us an email. Just save your time. Right. So (laughs) Newfoundland welcomed margarine. And since it was so much easier to make margarine there than to raise cows, it developed its own margarine industry. Margarine was also an important part of the diets of many Newfoundlanders. And thanks to its calorie, calorie and fat content, enriched margarine even became part of a specific government effort to combat malnutrition. Uh, people from Canada who wanted margarine during this whole Canadian prohibition would smuggle it in either from Newfoundland or from the United States. All that together means that during the union between Newfoundland and Canada in 1949, margarine became a problem. Uh, Canada's laws did not allow a product to be legal in one province and illegal in others. So even if Newfoundland had just started importing butter from the other provinces, it would be way more expensive than margarine. Plus, nobody really wanted to destroy Newfoundland's existing margarine industry. So the 1949 British North America Act spelled out that Newfoundland could keep making margarine. Like this is this is really basically the act of union between these nations to become one nation had a part in it about about margarine. Eventually, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that margarine was no longer an injurious uh, product and left regulation up to the provinces, which individually repealed their margarine bans and more gradually repealed laws that specified that the margarine had to be a specific color. The last of those was actually repealed in Quebec in 2008. Very recently, <laughs> we're going to talk more about colors of margarine a little later. Pink and purple. Uh, no. The United- no, but it is. <laughs> All the colors. Uh, that might make it more appealing to some people. The United States did not have a flat-out nationwide margarine prohibition, but it did have an ongoing feud between the butter and margarine industries, and that feud went on for almost a century. The first margarine factory in the United States was opened by the U.S. Dairy Company in 1874. That was the year after it bought Mejmurier's U.S. patent. And within 10 years, there were almost 40 different American companies making margarine. The dairy industry, unsurprisingly, was not happy about this at all. The dairy industry was afraid that, number one, people were going to switch to margarine across the board. And number two, that poor people switching to margarine would put the smaller butter makers that made like a lower grade, less expensive butter out of business. Number three in the dairy industry's list of fears was that people were going to fraudulently sell margarine labeled as butter. As had been a concern in Europe. Correct. 
And that last fear was absolutely justified. Manufacturers were making and selling margarine in large quantities, which unscrupulous people were divvying up and repackaging and selling as butter. Just one of many, many examples, which was described in an 1877 New York Times article, quote, Christopher Strauss, grocer of number 16 Second Avenue, was arraigned before Justice Murray in the 57th Street Police Court yesterday, charged with selling oleomargarine, representing it to be pure butter. S.A. Churchill, a former manufacturer of the artificial article and who is now employed as a detective by the Butter and Cheese Exchange, appeared as complainant. I just want to highlight the fact that there was a Butter and Cheese Exchange that had a detective. I feel like there is a wonderful historical fiction novel to be had there. Yep. So this threat of fraud also applied to American exports of butter, which was cause for concern in the butter industry, too. American butter exports and, quote, spurious compounds resembling butter were discussed in the British House of Commons on April 1st of 1881. One inspector was cited as saying 40 out of every 100 casks of butter he inspected did not contain butter. The superintendent of Manchester and Salford Markets was quoted as saying, quote, I seized 13 tubs of butter at a wholesaler confectioner's bakery. It was the most filthy stuff imaginable, stunk fearfully, and was of many colors. It's likely that a lot of these claims of, quote, spurious compounds were inflated or really were butter that had just gone rancid in transit. Even so, butter fraud really was a very real problem. However, a lot of the dairy industry's other complaints about margarine and claims that they made to try to discourage people from eating margarine were, to be very candid, extremely hypocritical. Margarine was decried as inferior, made of poor quality ingredients and likely to be contaminated. Since some of margarine's ingredients were byproducts of animal slaughter, the butter industry claimed it was made of things that were really garbage and not meant for human consumption. Uh, Margarine was kind of described the way we would describe hot dogs today as being like made of scrapings. There were comparisons to margarine being no better than melting the burned out stub of your candle and then eating that. Meanwhile, margarine manufacturers were inviting inspectors and legislators and consumers to just come tour their factories anytime unannounced to see that they were indeed clean and that their ingredients were wholesome. However, at this time, the butter industry was just on the cusp of becoming more standardized. For its whole history, butter had mostly come not from dedicated dairy farms, but from small farms with one or two cows whose milk was made into butter seasonally. There was really no consistency in how good this butter was or how high its quality was. It kind of depended entirely on how healthy the cow was and how well it was cared for, as well as on the skill, attention to cleanliness, and promptness of the person making it. In other words, sure, a dirty factory could crank out adulterated margarine, but a dirty farm kitchen could crank out adulterated butter just as easily. The dairy industry also put out a massive campaign portraying margarine as an inferior artificial product made in a factory. The fact that it was from a factory, man-made, and something made it somehow automatically bad, and this came up again and again. In 1877, Minnesota Governor Lucius Hubbard spelled it out this way, quote, The public has been victim of various impositions practiced in different departments of its industry. But I think it will be admitted that the ingenuity of depraved human genius has culminated in the production of oleomargarine and its kindred abominations. 
But at the same time, the centrifugal cream separator was introduced in 1878, just four years after the first margarine factory was open. And this was a device that could automatically remove the cream from milk. And from there, it could be made into butter. The centrifugal cream separator was really only cost effective in an industrial setting using large batches of milk. So just as the margarine industry was really becoming established in the United States, the dairy industry was also on this anti-factory campaign while simultaneously moving from small batch farm butter to large batch creamery butter, which was made in a factory. (laughs) Factories are evil. Let's build some. (laughs) And the last big hypocrisy in the dairy industry's campaign against margarine was coloring. Margarine, made from 19th century methods, was white, and it looked kind of like lard. Most manufacturers colored it yellow, both to look more appetizing and to more resemble butter, since margarine was basically being touted as a butter substitute. The dairy industry, on the other hand, insisted that that the margarine industry's practice of coloring the product yellow was bad, both deceptive and unwholesome. So the dairy industry lobbied for laws against yellow margarine. But there's the thing. When cows eat grass, butter that's made from the milk they produce tends to be very yellow because of all the carotene in what the cows were eating. But if the cows are fed corn or other feed that doesn't have that much carotene, the butter made from their milk is much, much paler. So the dairy industry was already coloring butter yellow when it demanded that the margarine industry stop doing that. And their argument... (laughs) was that the dairy industry's own use of yellow coloring was simply a minor tweak, while the margarine industry's use of the same color was an outright deception. All of these efforts on the part of the dairy industry led to a ton of laws and a just ridiculous number of Supreme Court cases, which we will talk about after another sponsor break. So to get back to the story of margarine, and we are now going to get into just a a shocking amount of time and effort spent in the legal world with margarine. After margarine was introduced in the United States in 1874, the push to regulate it started almost immediately. The National Association for the Prevention of Adulteration of Butter was formed in 1882. (laughs) That was a real thing. And by 1886, 27 states had margarine laws on their books. 20 of these states required margarine to be labeled specifically as margarine. And then Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Ohio banned margarine outright. I can't help but think about the fact that there's a lot of dairy industry in those areas. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Uh, That year, President Grover Cleveland signed the Oleomargarine Act into law. And with that, margarine manufacturers had to pay $600, wholesalers $480, and retailers $48 for the privilege of selling margarine. Yep. Cons- or making it. <laughs> yeah. Of being in the margarine pipeline. Sure. <laughs> uh, consumers had to pay a tax of two cents per pound on margarine that they purchased. So that's not a lot of time that elapsed between when margarine was introduced in the United States and when we had a national law with taxes. Uh, although the dairy industry, which was focused, well, I mean, largely in the Midwest, not just the Midwest, but the big part of the Midwest, this was hugely in favor of this law. 
the South, home to the soy and cottonseed farms that were supplying the margarine industry with oils, were not so much in favor of the law. Also opposed to it were people who felt like this was the first step down a slippery, slippery slope of the federal government needlessly regulating private business. There were a lot of people who were terrified that the government was just going to start regulating everything. Even though the Oleomargarine Act had been touted as something that would curtail the practice of margarine fraud, that fraud actually got worse after this act went into effect. There was more deliberate mislabeling of margarine as butter in an effort to evade those taxes instead of less. Running alongside all of these taxes and prohibitions were laws about margarine's color. As we talked about before the break at this at this point in history, margarine in its originally made state was like white and lardy looking. Multiple states outlawed yellow margarine specifically. In 1884, Vermont passed a law that margarine sold there had to be dyed pink. Hooray! Yep, that's for Holly. It's Holly's margarine. In 1891, New Hampshire and West Virginia followed suit. See, I just see you making all kinds of beautiful pink sauces that yeah, look sure. like princess food. Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems obvious. I wish it were butter, but that's just because I like some butter fat. Uh, <laughs> the move to regulate margarine color increased dramatically over the next few decades. By 1902, 32 of the then 45 states had regulations about margarine color, many of them banning yellow margarine, and some of them, like Vermont had already done, mandating that it be dyed a colors other than yellow. That same year, the Oleo Margarine Act of 1886 was amended in what was known as the Grout Bill, named after William Wallace Grout of Vermont. This bill, (laughs) so it's hard to say some of today's episode with a straight face. This bill raised the tax on colored margarine from two cents a pound to 10 cents a pound. Meanwhile, the tax on uncolored margarine, so that would be the white margarine, was dropped to a quarter of a cent per pound. Those licensing fees that had been part of the original oleomargarine law were also reduced dramatically for the manufacturers, distributors, and retailers who handled only uncolored margarine. And that 1902 amendment also set the regulation that any margarine being shipped from one state to another was subject to the laws of the destination state. This changed the world of margarine manufacturing dramatically. By 1914, fewer than 1,000 retailers were selling colored margarine, compared to more than 62,000 who, at least according to their records, were only selling uncolored margarine. There's a lot of at least in that, at least according. (laughs) There was still a lot of margarine fraud happening. However, uh, enforcement on all of this was extremely difficult, since the colored here related only to the artificial color that was being added when the product was made. Manufacturers started getting around that law by selling white margarine with this little capsule of yellow food dye that could be worked through the product, and then eventually selling margarine in these kneadable bags to make that step a lot easier. So you would like... You would break the little capsule with it in the sealed up bag and then you would mash it all through the bag until it was all yellow. This sort of surprises me and here is why. Uh-huh. So you would think that the reason they were coloring it yellow in the first place was to make it more saleable. Like it was more appealing than something that just looked like a slab of lard. Mm-hmm. But if you're then selling the thing that looks the way that they were concerned would not be appealing with a DIY yellow, like you still know that it's 
that. I think then maybe did it bump up because it became a fun kitchen craft? (laughs) A lot of it was because it just does not look very yummy to spread lard on your toast. Yeah. A lot of it had to do with like the visual presentation once it actually got to the, your, your dinner to table, table level. Or I gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, it looks, it just, it does not, uh, the idea of slathering something that looks like Crisco on my toast sounds pretty gross to me. Yeah, I bet some people would be into it. Uh, but then in 1909, hydrogenation was discovered and hydrogenating a natural yellow oil retained a lot more of that yellow color than previous methods for making margarine. In 1931, the federal government applied the 10 cents a pound tax to naturally yellow margarine made with hydrogenated oils. And in 1933, federal law defined, quote, colored margarine as anything containing, quote, more than 1.6 degrees of yellow on the Love Bond Tentometer. That's a great band name, too. It is a great Love Bond Tentometer. I'd go see them. All of these prohibitions and taxes and regulations wound up leading to multiple Supreme Court cases. So in addition to Congress spending lots of time and energy, you know, passing laws about how many degrees of yellow made colored margarine, uh, the Supreme Court was in on this action, too, just as some examples. And I'm I'm serious. These are just examples. There are lots, lots more than these examples. Powell versus Pennsylvania in 1888 questioned police power to enforce a law that said no one could have margarine under 14th Amendment equal protection grounds. The 14th <laughs> Amendment, just to be clear... <laughs> Like the 14th Amendment is the amendment people have been talking about, about like whether uh, children with disabilities have the right to be educated in the same classroom as children who were not disabled or whether uh, whether like Brown Brown versus Board. That was a 14th Amendment case. The court unanimously ruled that the 14th Amendment's equal protection clause did not apply to buying margarine. What? (laughs) What? Yeah, it's a ridiculous, love this. ridiculous use of the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Uh, Schallenberger versus Pennsylvania in 1898 dealt with Rhode Island's attempt to export margarine to Pennsylvania where it was banned. The Supreme Court did not uphold this import ban, saying that a state couldn't ban the import of a normal federally taxed product. Yeah, I don't think this would have flown if there had not been a federal tax at that point. But the fact that it was like, okay, you can't, you can't have a, at the state level banning a product that is taxed at the federal level was yeah. like how the Supreme Court approached this. Uh, Collins versus New Hampshire, also in 1898, dealt with the New Hampshire law that required all margarine sold in the state to be pink, including margarine imported from out of state. This one was also found to be unconstitutional with the, the uh, decision including, quote, where the state has not the power to absolutely prohibit the sale of an article of commerce like oleomargarine in its pure state. It has no power to provide that such articles shall be colored or rather discolored by adding a foreign substance to it. I think we should bring back the pink margarine law, but that's just (laughs) me. Uh, Plumley versus Massachusetts was in 1894, and it related to the Massachusetts ban on yellow margarine, which the court upheld as constitutional because it was not a wholesale ban on margarine, just on yellow margarine. (laughs) These are just examples. Uh, there were a whole bunch of other Supreme Court cases about margarine as well and about taxes on it and about the licensing fees and the colors and interstate commerce. 
like the I, I read an article that was about barriers to interstate commerce, and it was sort of uh, listing off all of these societal things that that create barriers in interstate commerce, where where states' laws are incompatible with like shipping products across the state lines. And margarine was listed as a barrier to interstate commerce. <laughs> These federal laws about margarine crimes also were not just an idle threat. At least four men served time in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary for margarine infractions. At least one of them more than once, including evading the margarine tax and selling fake margarine. I have to think if somebody asks what you're in for and you say margarine fraud, <laughs> you're not going to really have much like toughness cred. No. I'm thinking no. margarine fraud. So all of this anti-margarine fervor in the United States started to shift during both of both of the world wars when dairy was needed for the war effort and also during the Great Depression when margarine's cheapness was a really big selling point. During the 1920s, margarine manufacturers also stopped trying to present their product as an alternative to butter and started labeling it as basically a delicious spread and cooking ingredient that was yummy and wholesome on its own merits. Margarine gradually lost its association with being a product for poor people, and the margarine industry gradually organized itself into a more effective lobbying body, including forming the National Association of Margarine Manufacturers. Then, as the dairy industry had done back in the 1880s, the margarine industry started lobbying for the Oleomargarine Act to be overturned, and it was aided by a steep increase in the price of butter. President Harry Truman signed the Margarine Act of 1950, repealing the 1886 legislation. However, individual states still had their own rules about margarine and how it was taxed and colored. Wisconsin was the last state to overturn its laws banning yellow margarine in 1967. Uh, and it also, of all the states, had the most and the strictest margarine laws. It was illegal in Wisconsin to sell and even use colored margarine. If you wanted to go outside the state of Wisconsin and buy colored margarine and bring it back, you were supposed to get a consumer's permit to do that and record all of your purchases and pay a six cents a pound tax on those purchases every six months or every three months. Sorry, uh, that was a vastly unpopular program. Nobody really wanted to do it. At its peak, only 120 annual licenses had been sold, which was in 1954. There were definitely way, way, way more people crossing the state line to buy yellow margarine in that year. Um, people sort of tried to work their minds around the fact uh, or, 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 or consider that probably they wouldn't get arrested because the law specified that it was illegal to use colored margarine, not to own it. So you would maybe only get arrested if the officer confiscated your lunchbox and saw margarine on your sandwich. But are you just going to... I don't know. Maybe you're going to tell the police... Leave the margarine somewhere yeah. and not consume it? Yeah, maybe you're just going to tell the police that your margarine is just for show. That you're like, a collector. <laughs> like my grandma's hand towels. I'm a margarine collector. This is part of my museum. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really head scratching on that one. Yeah. If that's like how you kind of morally walk yourself through, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's like, but is it like a have your cake and eat it too, where you eat the margarine and then you neither, you don't own it even anymore? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, even so, most of the stories about smuggling margarine are about bringing it to Wisconsin in from neighboring states as they repealed their own bans on yellow margarine. 
service stations at the state line stocked up on it, and friends and neighbors formed networks where they shared the responsibility of making the trip and traveling back with a trunk full of contraband. Wisconsin continues to ban margarine in public places unless specifically asked for. An attempt to overturn that in 2011, I did not misread that, that's 2011, failed. Yeah, I tried to confirm that that is definitely still the case. And if you live in Wisconsin and you know that it's not, then you can just let us know. Yeah, because I went on a hunt for that information, had a hard time with it. Uh there are some really great first-person accounts of people who, like, remember waking up on Saturday morning and their mom and all of their mom's friends would be uh, sitting around the table, uh, like, like, like having the, the conversation about whose turn it was to drive to Illinois <laughs> uh, and who paid for gas last time. And then they would come back with this trunk full of margarine and then put all the kids to work, uh, like, kneading it so that the yellow would be worked through before they distributed it to all of their neighbors. It was a whole... I think you mean to all the other collectors. Yes, because they were not going to use this margarine. They were just going to own it. Uh, of course, now, today, years later, both butter and margarine have still been on the receiving end of negative health associations in the years since the 1960s when margarine became a lot more legal. Margarine... Got a lot of negative publicity because of trans fats, that whole hydrogenation process that made it possible to make margarine that was already yellow not actually very good for you in a lot of ways. And then uh, both butter or butter has gotten a lot of bad publicity because of saturated fats. And then both of them have been decried as terrible uh, because of the general trend toward fat-free and low-fat foods, although there is just an increasing body of evidence that this whole fat-free, low-fat food trend is not actually healthier. Oh, you need some fat. Just put butter. You Okay, your brain is made out of fat, literally, right. and all of your cellular membranes also made out of fat. So you need it in your diet. Yeah, and also just for happiness. That too. <laughs> Make sure food tastes good. <laughs> Anyway, uh, butter versus I am still astonished that that much time and effort within the Supreme Court was spent arguing about mar- margarine. The longer we work on this podcast, the less and less I'm shocked by the by things anything. that have gotten to the Supreme Court. Yeah. In arduous, angry legal battles. Right. Right. <laughs> but if you're, I guess, in the industry, there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Even to, though yeah. to us it seems silly. Yeah. There were a lot of, a lot of people who were like, you are keeping, especially people who are, who don't have a lot of money, you're keeping them from buying this like totally wholesome food product. And the dairy industry would be like, it is made from candle wax. And really, I mean, we have to bring back pink margarine. That actually did happen. There was a, uh, there was like sort of a, uh, I don't remember which of the many, many margarine manufacturers it was, but they made like a squeezable margarine that was sort of marketed as being for kids and it came in pink and I think green or something. It came in two colors. Uh, I remember that for ketchup. Yeah. But I don't remember for margarine. But now I'm just, my brain is like, ooh, just get some butter and start your roux with your butter and your flour and then add beet juice and you can make a pink sauce that way. Like I'm off on making pink food. Well, (laughs) 
I have some I have some friends who make compounded margarine, not compounded margarine. They make compounded butter. I don't know why I just said margarine. But uh so they'll like work all kinds of delicious herbs or mm. uh they made a bloody mary compounded oh, margarine. Oh, me now. What well, I know that's not that's not your jam, but no. it is it is my jam to have like bloody mary seasonings in the butter. It was great. You're making the worst most disgusted face. So anyway, uh, when they, make, when I'm they just, make like a martini margarine <laughs> or a martini compounded butter, it, we can discuss. It, it would not surprise it, me. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway, so I am imagining that if you wanted, there is a similar compounding method that you could use to color your butter. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, beet juice. It's probably something I'm Magical. interested about it. Uh, so that is butter versus margarine. Got some listener mail. I do have listener mail. Is it as jovial and fun as butter versus margarine? It's, it's kind of fun. It's interesting. It's from Josephine. Josephine says, hello, ladies. When I was listening to your most recent unearthed episode, I was very interested in your discussion of what was happening in Salem and what locals thought about their town's history and the tourism that happens there. A few years ago, a friend and I went to Boston and made a day trip to Salem. It poured buckets nearly all day, but despite that, we had an amazing time. My friend said she almost preferred Salem to Boston. I admit it, I originally went because of the history of the witch trials, though more because it was dark uh, and less because of Halloweenish connotations. But when we got there, the first place we stopped by total chance was the Salem Visitor Center. I am so glad we did. The gentleman who talked to us took a, uh, took us on a tour of the Friendship. Yes, that's the actual name of the ship. And then to the Salem Custom House and told us a lot about the trading history of the town. I'd had no idea that they were a major port. We also talked about Nathaniel Hawthorne and his influence on and time in Salem. Overall, we talked little about the witch trials because there was so much history to talk about regardless. When they did come up, however, he voiced an opinion very similar to what you ladies were saying. They were innocent people who were executed. He talked a lot about how disrespectful the more kitschy attractions were and told us about a trolley that used to have little dolls hanging from their necks along the ride. Along the side, which, in the context of what was really happening, is horrifying. Just thought I'd share my little story and encourage anyone who visits Salem to head to the Visitor Center first. It's a good way to find out how much there is to see there and get good insight on how the inhabitants feel about their history. And everyone should visit Salem if they can. It's a truly wonderful place. Keep up the podcasting. Sincerely, Josephine. I... Wanted to thank Josephine for sending this letter, and I wanted to read it because I also took a day, tri- day trip to Salem last fall, uh, and I went to some awesome places. You can go to the House of the Seven Gables there, um, and you can learn all kinds of stuff about Nathaniel Haw- Hawthorne. I went there. You can go to the Peabody Essex Museum, uh, which I went there, and they have all kinds of really amazing art, and then they also have a Chinese house uh, the kind of historical Chinese home that was built around a courtyard in the center, and they moved the entire house to the museum. And there is an audio tour where you can tour the whole house and hear about the whole house's history and the history of the family who lived there. Uh, I also went on a walking tour with Nancy, who was a listener of the show, and that was from Salem Historical Tours, and that was awesome. So there is a lot of awesome other history in Salem besides just the witch trial history. And there are some people... Uh, such as Salem Historical Tours, who are doing the witch trial history in a pretty thorough and respectful and not a historical way. <laughs> like, there's definitely a lot of witch trial stuff in Salem that is not particularly respectful, but there are definitely parts of it that are. Yay! I have to confess, I've never been. I'm so overdue. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a cool place. I like, uh, it's very easy to get there from Boston because you can take the ferry. Nice. 
And then you can walk from the ferry terminal to wherever you want. Nice. So if you're like me, you don't have a car. It makes it really cool. Uh, and it also meant that I didn't have to fight traffic on the way back. Hooray! Um, so... If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we are also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have an Instagram that is at History. also. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. And there is all kinds of information about food of all types. Mm-hmm. You can also come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes for all the episodes that Holly and I have ever done. You will find uh, an archive of every episode we've ever had. You will find information about our live shows that we have coming up this summer and fall. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at howstuffworks.com or mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 